you have to sell with excellence, right? So I think we talked about that a little bit, but for me, I define excellence as proficiency and passion, right? Because those are two things, because I believe you can be perfect and not be excellent. Mm -hmm. I believe as a salesperson, you could go out with your sales sheets and you could go through the sales process with perfection. That person is going to leave your meeting completely, had been engaged, had been informed, educated, and now they understand the process of buying from you and not buy from you because you did not sell with excellence. You sold with proficiency. Welcome everyone to The Ultimate Shift. Join Ephraim Glick and leading figures in business and entertainment as they share their stories of regular people overcoming tremendous obstacles only to achieve happiness, success, and fulfillment. Are you ready to make the ultimate shift in your life? Welcome back to The Ultimate Shift. Today, uh, my guest here is Tommy Walford. I had the uh, honor and the privilege of meeting you, what, about, what's it been, uh, three, four weeks? Yeah, ago? so a little bit over a month ago, yeah. Yeah, so this guy blew my mind. I mean, so we sat down and had dinner and some of the stories, I think, like I told you, I've shared with like pretty much all my consulting clients, with the people I work with. And so I'm, I'm super pumped about diving into who's Tommy Walford, you flip what six, seven companies now? Yes, yeah, so we're doing our sixth right now. Yeah. Your sixth, and you flipped them for millions of dollars. Made you know, took a losing company and uh, made them money. And you have a a program that kind of dives into that. Yeah, yeah. So we have developed a system through lots of failures that you know uh, guarantees success, or at least we believe it does. So we keep trying it, and it keeps working. So we haven't been proven wrong yet. <laughs> well, your results speak for themselves. So you shared a little bit of your childhood, like kind of your dreams and aspirations there. And can you dive into that a little bit and kind of give us a light of who you were as a kid and what you wanted to do with your life? Yeah, man. Um, so I grew up in a really small farming town, right? So like there was like 117 people in my town. Uh, I was one of like two kids. It was really like, you know, I grew up not like a child with a lot of like options. I remember being a kid and, you know, we had just moved near my grandparents' And then my mom had my sister. And so it was the first grandchild born around my grandparents. Right. And they would bring my sister over like presents and stuff like little toys and things like that. Cause she was a baby, but they didn't really know me. And so then like my mom had to say like, Hey, seriously, if you're going to bring one kid a toy, you've got to bring the other kid a toy kind of thing. And, but so, but they didn't know me. And I remember my mom saying like, Tommy loves apples. Like if you'll bring like a bag of apples, he'll be stoked about that. But like, that's how poor we were. The <laughs> apples every week were a treat, you know, like that's, that's where we were at that stage in life. And, you know, uh, I know that you grew up watching your parents work really hard and, you know, your background, but like, that's what I saw in my parents. Like my mom and dad are both high school graduates and that's it. Neither of them went to college, but my mom, uh, started as a teller and, um, took early retirement. It's like a vice president of loan operations for a bank. My dad was um, sort of historically a plumber and then got a job as a line operator at a tire manufacturer, just making tires, you know, and then um, retired from there 20 plus years later. And he was in charge of all the testing and hiring new people. And I just watched them work their butts off. And so like as a child, you know, I've, I've had a you know a job since I was 14. My first job was pruning peach trees in my little farming community. And we'd go out and we'd prune trees till our hands bled. Um, and then, and I've done everything that you can do on a peach farm from like planting the trees and plowing fields to putting box tops on and stacking trucks. So like, I, I just grew up working all yeah. the time. Um, went to, uh, went to schools, like normal public school, grew up in a community that was super, super, ethnic. Uh, we, I grew up in the South and I grew up in the rural South, which means you grew up around black people a lot and, mm -hmm. and just learned to love that culture and that community. And so I, I didn't grow up in a racist family. So I, so that I got saved from that growing up in the South. I didn't have to experience, you know, a lot of that. So it's important given what's going on in our day and time because, you know, all the things going on. So yes, yeah, so went to college and college wasn't for me. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, always wanted to be like an astronaut growing up kind of deal. That was the thing. Then that dream sort of fell apart and I had to pick a school and go to college. And the one thing I did as an extracurricular outside of sports in high school was theater. So I went to school on a theater degree. Um, and then was like, 
you know, kind of conned myself into being the school mascot and got another scholarship. So like I went to school, I went to college for free because I had a theater scholarship and uh, I literally talked myself into being the college mascot. Um, How'd you do that? Share that story. Yeah. So first day on campus, uh, literally freshman orientation, first day, I'm just on campus and I realized that the school, although it has a mascot, doesn't have a physical mascot. So I literally hunted down the head of men's athletics, Micah Sepko, and uh, and just said, hey, listen, I was a high school mascot. I want to be the mascot here. Um, And he's like, well, we don't have one. I was like, no, but you'll get one. Like, (laughs) we're going to do this. I'll design it. I'll furnish it. I'll figure it out. You just say yes, and I'll figure it out. And so I literally, the first game came, and I, I went to him, and I was like, I've got all the stuff. Can I get a ride to the game? And that's how that happened. He literally took me to the game and I entertained everybody the whole game and it was a hit. And then he gave me a scholarship and asked me to stay. Um, <laughs> that's incredible. Yes. You know, it's like the whole like power of an ask. You don't yeah. know what people will say yes to. Everybody's scared of the no. Like you, yeah. you get yeses a lot more than if yeah. you can make it a win for people. So I've always kind of had this like the rules don't apply to me mentality in life. Like, you know, everything's negotiable. I got through high school. I negotiated my way into college. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my SAT score was super, super high, but my, my GPA was like a 2.5 or something. It was not great. And the admissions counselor was like, you had a lot of fun in high school, didn't you? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I negotiated my way through it. So can I get in or not? That's all I need to know. Um, uh-huh. so it was good. So your dream as a kid was an astronaut and now you're like a super influential entrepreneur, like changing companies, changing the way people do business. So how did that happen? How did you go from wanting to be an astronaut to ending up being an entrepreneur? The astronaut thing just blew up in my face. It was never going to happen. And then um, spent a lot of time like working in organizations out of college uh, with young kids and that kind of thing. But literally, I just got I got fired from a job. That's how it happened. I got fired from a job and I didn't like not being able to negotiate. Like being an employee sucks. Mm -hmm. Um, Being the boss is always better. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, the company that let me go said, Hey, listen, we're going to give you six months of severance. We know this was kind of out of the blue. So a buddy of mine called and said, Hey, what are you going to do? And we started talking and he happened to be an engineer. And I was like, well, you know, I would love to start a company. And so we sat down and talked about it. And, uh, like literally three weeks later, he had quit his job, was like well-paying software engineering job. And we were off and running, um, with our first company thinking, um, that we had everything we needed, right? It's so like thinking that uh, we had a $30,000 investment from a friend because we had seen our business plan that literally we Google searched how to make a business plan. Like it was just terrible. We had no idea what we didn't know. And we're showing him projections where it was like, we're all going to make $6 million this year. You know, this is like idea that we had and it blew up in our faces. Like we flamed that company out in the worst way. We thought, you know, six months of severance, I was going to be rich before the six months ever ran out, right? Mm-hmm. 19 months later, I still haven't gotten a paycheck. I've got a one-year-old at home. 19 um, months later. 19 months later, no paycheck. So over, over a year and a half. You're married and you have a kid at home. Uh, yeah, married, kid at home, two cars repossessed at this time over that 19 months. Thought we were going to get evicted every day on and, and ended up for about six months having to be on food stamps. Um but we always felt like we were just close. Like we, if we just need one little thing. And so we just kept pushing. And what we learned that first failure, the biggest lesson was that everybody can be a successful entrepreneur. And the only difference between those who do and those who don't is that those who don't eventually quit. Why do they quit? Because it gets hard. It's frigging hard, dude. Like, like having your wife call you crying because there's no food in the house. Literally no food in the mm-hmm. house. Like that happened to me. You know, like our cockroaches ate better than we did and they did. They just did. Um, you told me at one point you were you were eating saltine crackers, crackers with ketchup. ketchup. Yeah, McDonald's ketchup and saltine crackers. So like Andrew uh, was would work 20 hours a day and then I would go sell our product and I would come in and like so I'd be out all day long selling in the Georgia heat at an 85 Ford Ranger that had no air conditioning. It was like the hottest summer I ever remember. And I'm out in like a suit coat and I'd come in just drenched, clean through the suit coat, you know, like trying to like be out knocking on doors on businesses, going door to door, selling our product. Um, the first paycheck we got was 500 bucks for the month. And we took our wives to PF Chang's. 
that to this day, if something good happens, we all pile in and we go to PF Chains and we just because that was our spot. But I remember like Andrew handing his $500 check to his wife at dinner and he was like, Hey, we have a surprise for you guys. And Katie, his wife, saying, You guys did it. They thought we did it. <laughs> like, like we figured out how to make money. Like we had a profit for a month and then we got to split it. Maybe it was a thousand dollars. But then like legitimately 30 days later, we were off. Kelly and I were off food stamps. 30 days after that, we were making real money. Like it was, it was always just right there. We never could get everything lined up right. Yeah. So I want to dive into that mindset of that to some extent because it's, it's a lot of people struggle with that. I think every entrepreneur at some point in time has come to that breaking point of do I quit or do I go and what keeps them going. But you told me a story about your, your career wanting to be an astronaut and, and what happened there. And I think that has to do with your drive later on. Could you share that story of the, the shift that you, you, you had to majorly pivot during that time? I, I honestly believe that I'm where I am because I had a mom who just always told me I could do whatever. Like, like, honestly, like I've been called conceited. I've been called arrogant. And I tell my mom, like she gets all the credit for the good stuff, but she all gets all the blame for the bad stuff. Because like, if you tell a kid that they're amazing for 20 years, they believe it eventually, you know? And so like my mom, like, you know, I was in a little small farming town and my mom and dad scraped up money and like sent me to Florida to go to space camp, you know? And so like stuff like that as a kid, just always encouraged me to be, you know, pushing the limits. And I did. I wanted to be an astronaut. And then I wanted to be in the Air Force, did Air Force ROTC in high school because um, I got to fly all the time. And then like that, I, you know, had an injury. I was doing this like stupid like camping trip and broke my collarbone. And it was just really evident like that was never going to happen for me after that. I was never going to qualify for any of those things. But like literally I graduated high school with no plan. I had no idea what I wanted to do. You know, I just didn't. And I had to pick something quickly. And so I just found the school that I had visited, like that you could get free days off of school if you got a college visit day. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you visited two schools, it didn't count against your absence. And these other two girls that I was friends with said, hey, we want to go visit our boyfriends at Clemson, which is a you know, huge university in South Carolina. And uh, we had to visit two schools. And the school I ended up going to was just sort of like 45 minutes from there. Mm-hmm. So we were like, well, let's throw that in there and we'll go to Clemson and hang out for the day. <laughs> and that's how I even found out the school. And so like. Entrepreneurs need to learn more than anything. Like you've got to pivot. Like you've got to pivot. Like you've got to be able to say what was going to happen is now not going to happen. And that does not matter. Like it just doesn't matter. Like the thing that you thought was the future that you had isn't going to happen. Can this include even businesses? Like it should mostly include businesses. Okay. Yeah. Like, so I always believe there are only two ways to learn in life, mentors and mistakes. Like that's it. That's, that's all you get. And if you take my mistakes and you learn from them, then they get to mentor you, right? So you don't have to make my mistakes. So what really pivoted for me and Andrew was our first business was failing. And we met this guy named Mike Fanning. And Mike Fanning owns All-Star Tents and Events in Aiken, South Carolina. And it's a small to medium-sized company, um, but Mike is great. He's a hustler. We love Mike to death. And we were like talking to Mike and we're like, dude, how did you get into the tent business? Like that's a random niche, right? Like he literally provides these huge tents for every event in our town. And we're like, how did you find this niche? And how'd you get the tent business? And he said, I'm not in the tent business. And I was like, well, okay, unpack that for me. He said, I'm in the opportunity business. And he goes, I didn't want to be in the tent business. I wasn't trying to be in the tent business. There was an opportunity to make money. He said, I'm in the money business. Mm. And the opportunity to make money came along and I did that. And so that really set me and Andrew on this like idea. This is how our whole thing with LeadFast came to be is that we realized in that one conversation that money business is always money business. It's the same. It doesn't matter if you're selling oranges, selling software, selling tents, making money is making money. All the basic tenants are the same. And if you start examining everything through like the basic pieces, everything just builds itself. And that's why we flipped five businesses. That's why we sold, we've had three out of our four businesses get acquired. Like it's been like those types of things because we just go to our core principles and we never deviate. Like business is always business and it doesn't matter what else you're doing. I've never heard that said before, but that's really fascinating to me about the opportunity business. Uh, and I want to dive into that with regard to people's passions and then their business. Cause yeah. there's people who say, well, you should only do your passion. 
when I got into commercial contracting and, and I've pivoted, uh, you know, I'm on my eighth company. I've pivoted many different times when, when I realized like one, I was getting burned out with this or I didn't no longer enjoy this. And for a couple of years, uh, earlier in my life, I felt guilty whenever I did. Cause you know, it's, it's this whole thing where people think, well, you're supposed to, to do what you're good at in that case, but how can you ever grow then if you're not changing? And so I struggled with that, but the company that's made me the most money was not something I wanted to do, but I saw the opportunity financially. And then yeah. what that allowed me to do as a commercial contractor, it's made me enough of money that I can pour money into my passion, which tends to be this project and, and a couple of different things that are tied to this. So what would you advise, let's say the younger Tommy or that 15 year old entrepreneur or the 18 year old entrepreneur, somebody who's wanting to start their business, but they may know what it is and they may think it's their passion or they may not know what it is. What's your first thing that you go to that person with and say, these are your core principles of what you should be looking for. And these are the steps you take. Yeah. So first, what I would make them do before I ever get them into like our system is I want them to go read this book called The E-Myth Revisited, The Entrepreneurial Myth, right? So this book was like foundational for me. Essentially, he talks about is the fact that there are three types of people who go into business for themselves. The first one, he calls them the engineer, the person who's out there like that makes widgets and they're the best widget maker. And they look at their work and they go, you know, this guy above me running the business doesn't really appreciate what I'm doing and the craftsmanship of what I have. And you know what? I'm going to go into business making widgets for myself. And they do that for lots of reasons like, oh, well, I'm the best widget maker and there's too many restrictions here. I can go do this myself and do it the way it's supposed to be done. And they have an idea of how it should be done. And they get out and they realize that now they're not building widgets. They're running a business that sells widgets. And that's not the same thing, right? Um, and then there's the entrepreneur who just wants to go run businesses. And he can look at widgets and go, oh, that's value. But if you run the business like this, you can maximize its value and you can make money. Um, and then there's the manager. And that's sort of the person who like, if you give them a set of parameters and you say, you got to work inside this box and get to success, they could probably arrange everything. They're good at managing, but they're not visionary and they don't build widgets. And those are sort of the three people that end up in business. Most people are one of the two extremes. They're either the engineer or the entrepreneur, right? So like to your point, you know, if you are out there and you're like 18 years old and you're like, I make the best beats on the planet. You know, like I'm, I want to be a producer one day because I make the best beats. Making good beats and running a business that sells beats are completely different, mm -hmm. right? Um, I make the best YouTube videos. Being talent on air and maximizing your audience is, you know, is different. It's just different. And so um, running a roofing company is different from being the best roofer mm -hmm. on the planet, right? Yeah. And so understanding that because some people go out and they're very successful because the niche that they serve with their widget building is wide enough that it makes them a ton of money. Right. So, okay. So to, to your point there on, let's say the guy who wants to do beats, but he may not be, have the business side of it. There's so many people that discourage partnerships. What's yeah. your take on that? You've got to have them. You think so? Yeah. Heck yeah. Meaning splitting your company in percentage. Out of all the success that I've had, none of it, 0% of it would have happened without my partner. None. None. It's not a talent level. Yeah. He sees things that I don't see and there's value in his vision, mm -hmm. right? He He's an engineer. He's very like linear in his thinking, but he's also like, he's maybe a little weird as an engineer because he's a risk taker like I am, but, but differently, like. I just go, oh, I had an idea. I'm fully confident that my idea will work. Then he starts vetting out the idea. Mm -hmm. And then when we actually execute on it, he's also confident. But now I know. I knew the whole time. You're the visionary. He's the detail guy. Yeah. He's got vision and he sees things too. We just see things differently. Like we, we just hired a personal assistant yesterday and we were talking to her about how she's going to have to interact with us, right? And I was like, so the way Andrew and I approach things it's like if the answer to a question is six and he's over here saying three plus three is six and I'm over here arguing, no, 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 three times two is six. We're almost always trying to get to the same answer or have the same idea of what the answer should be. Our approaches are just different. Okay. So how do you navigate that? 
it's hard, bro. Like, I mean, when, when we were going through it, there were moments where like, like literally probably the saddest moment of being an entrepreneur and the hardest moment we've ever gone through is that like, I, I just wouldn't go to the office. I would work from home and it, it, the office was at his home. And so I, I literally called him one day and I was like, we need to talk. I just, I need to say this out loud because if I don't say it out loud, I'll dwell on it. Like, I know things are hard right now, but, and I don't hold this against you, but when this is over, we're not going to be friends anymore. I don't want to see you. I don't want to talk to you. Like I just, you guys have done most of your business deals together. We've done all of them. All of them. Okay. All so this them. is this is one or two companies in. This, this is, is the first company. Yeah. The first company. Yeah. And so like things get hard with partners, man. Like I think I told you this, but the only thing that you need to like develop as an entrepreneur to win is the inability to quit. Like some people want you to develop a ability. The most important thing for entrepreneurs is to develop an inability. Like it's not the ability to keep going. It's the inability to quit. Quitting is not an option. It's off the table. And I've developed that as a skill, but I couldn't quit on Andrew either. I wanted to. And that's what I was communicating was that Lou, when this is over, but the moment that it was over, I didn't want to quit. I couldn't yeah. quit. Yeah. He sacrificed as much as I did. He hurt as much as I did, but partnerships are crucial. If you don't have the complete toolbox, you've got to have a partner. You just got to. So you think you think that's easier done than let's say finding that person that you can pay to do maybe that part that you're not good at. It. Henry Ford put it this way. What did he say one time? He said, I don't know how to do any one thing we're doing, but I can push a button at my desk and find the person who does. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how I've tended to operate. I've only done one partnership deal uh, ever in a company that went really bad. It just happened to be a bad partnership. So we could talk probably two hours on finding the right partner for one, but let's focus a little bit on like, what is something that let's say someone feels like they, they don't know a part of their business. I'm not a detail guy. So I have a CPA that handles all my numbers guy. I'm, I'm the visionary. I'm the, let's go do it. Yeah. I'm not dwelling on the facts and the details and things. So for someone like me, do you think I can do better faster? If faster is the goal, it's not necessarily the goal here to find a partnership to sell a portion of my company. Or am I better off finding that person that may know the details and love the details and just pay them, whether it's a salary or, uh, you know, a salary plus commissions, a salary plus bonus. What's your take on that? Hoped for results, right? So like, I always look at what do I, what am I trying to accomplish? How big do I want this to be? So scope. And then this thing I define as opportunity timeline. Um, Leonard Ravenhill, uh, this old guy once said, um, the opportunity of a lifetime has to be seized during the lifetime of that opportunity that you'll never have the same opportunity twice. So how, how open, what's the timeline, the opportunity timeline? Do I have six weeks to make this work? Do I have six years to make this work? Is it infinite? Cause I'm just working on this side hustle project. And if it blows up, it blows up. And if it doesn't, well, then that's a completely different, like all those scenarios change, right? If you were saying, I want to, double my business at, you know, the roofing company. I want to double that in the next 12 months. And I start looking at it and I go, that means somebody else that works as hard as me has to be here. You will never, ever, ever compensate someone, hire someone that will work as hard as you. Or if they have an ownership stake. Right. So if you want someone who's going to come in and work 20 hours a, a day, like Andrew and I did side by side, then it better be equal. Mm -hmm. I hear so many people like, dude, like, honestly, it's my biggest gripe with business owners. Business owners, like they have some kid making 15 bucks an hour and they're like, this dumbass over here, like, look, he doesn't even really care about his job. I'm like, care about compared to what? Well, like, he doesn't do it the way I would do it. Well, he's not the owner. Yeah. You can't expect your employees to love it or, or be into it or live and die and breathe it the way you do. If you need someone so that you can accomplish whatever goal you set out, if you need someone that's going to love it, live it, breathe it, die on it, on that hill the way you do, then yeah, you've got to make them a partner. So this would be a, a, a managing partner, not let's say someone that's just buying equity in your company as a silent partner type of deal. Yeah. I mean, if, you, if, if you're just going to like raise money to go buy some machinery and do something, like, there are lots of ways to structure that. Like a convertible debt is a game changer. Like hey, I, I'm going to make equity a part of this deal, but I'm only going to make it if I fail, if I don't pay you back. Other than that, it's debt. So a convertible debt note is like, hey, I'm going to collateralize my debt with equity. 
But if I pay back the debt, the equity goes off the table, go do that. Go to Cabbage or On Deck and get a, you know, a 20% loan, you know, like credit card and interest rates, like a loan shark. Go do that instead. Like if you're convinced that your company is going to be worth hundreds of millions of dollars, don't give up the equity. If you don't have access to any of those things, it's not an equipment standpoint. It's I need different and more vision. I need different and more passion. I need different and more people that will live and breathe and die with me. Then you have to give up equity. Like, bro, like there's one, it's not fair. So it's not equitable, right? right? It's not equitable. It's not fair for me to expect you to die for something that you don't get to live for. You know, it's got to be both sides of the equation. And lots of people will disagree with me on that. But, but, but you have, you have the results here. Well, I, have, I mean, I have results, but it's not even that. Like it's, it's, it's about being frigging decent to people. I would never ask anybody to do something I wasn't willing to do or probably doing first. Yeah. That's right. Number one thing I've ever learned about the very first job that I know it was the very first job I took after I left the Amish. So the very first non-Amish job in this case, the guy told me, he said, I would never ask of you to do something I would do. It stuck with me more so than anything I've ever done. And so you you told me about a business deal that you did that I want to discuss. And you also told me about how you, uh, you weren't telling me this in, in this way, but it, it's you told me a couple of stories that showed me how you treat people. I want to talk about both those things, but I also want to get, before we jump into that, into the mind of Tommy Wofford as far as like, what what was your biggest fear ever in life and how did you deal with the fear? Because there's a lot of people that make decisions based off of fear and you've made a lot of really good rational decisions, I feel like. So do you know, is there a time that you can think that was your biggest fear and then how did you dive into that? My biggest fear in life, well, the thing that's driven me in life and still to this day is sort of this idea of not being significant. Like that drives me, like I want to be important. And I wasn't like, just so everybody knows, like, I'm not a cool guy. I didn't grow up the cool guy. I was the nerd in school. I got bullied real bad, um, real, real bad. But it wasn't until about 10th grade to 11th grade that really came out of my shell, got a friend group and became social. But uh, up until then, I had like one good friend, like my Townsend, my best friend since sixth grade and like still my friend, like, you know, whatever, like still runs a farm and all this stuff. And like, we're still good friends. Uh, I wasn't that kid. But my biggest fear was like not being significant. Like I wanted to be known. I wanted to be helpful. I didn't want to be significant because I wanted to be famous. I wanted to be impactful. Like even at a young age, like really, like honestly at 11, 12, I remember like trying to figure out how I can make the most difference. Like I wanted to be impactful. When people left me, I wanted them to feel like, dang, like that was like a thing. And like all the way through high school, through college, like, and in whatever, in whatever group I was in, whatever I needed to be, to be that person. So if I was at school and I needed to cut up or if I needed to like serve people well, or I needed to like just love on people, or if I needed to like be serious, like whatever I needed to be in any situation so that I could leave the most impact that really has honestly shaped. It's who I'm scared of today. Like I want to leave a name for my kids. Like I've got three kids and two of the oldest are boys. And I tell them all the time, I'm like, Hey, like, like my, my middle kid will, he'll, he'll, he's real sensitive, but if he's super tough and he'll get like hit, hit in the face with a ball or something, he'll start crying. And I'll go, Hey, hey, whoa, whoa, stop. What are we? And he'll go, Wofford's. And I go, Wofford's don't what? And he'll go, cry or whine. And I said, All right, suck it up. Let's go. Like, I want my name to mean something and I want my kids' names to mean something. So something they can be proud of. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you, you told me about this deal uh, you did with this bar in Atlanta. And I find it fascinating as an entrepreneur. And I think any one of our listeners can relate to this in a sense. You, you took a failing bar in this case, if I remember correctly, you said it was losing 30 grand per month. Yeah, it was bad. And then you, you flipped that and you sold it for a couple million bucks. You used a couple principles. I'd like to dive into those, those principles of what you told me. Uh, and I think this is a program that you have online too, yeah. that people can go find. We can talk more about that. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this story and then the principles that you applied in order to, to make the change? Yeah. So, so Andrew and I have this system, right? And so we know that every business operates on the same five basic principles and it's attraction, interest, conversion, purchase, or buy-in. 
and then repeat business. So this is every business, every business. It doesn't matter. And there's some math that goes between each one. Um, so and I'm giving away all the secret sauce here, but it's good. I like it. Uh, attraction times frequency. So if I can be attractive, that's the first step and, and they're interdependent. So you can't do the third thing without doing the first two, right? So the first thing is attraction. So do I look good? Is what I have to offer valuable? You know, is, okay. is what I'm like. So as a product, is it value? Do you look good as a company? As a company? Do you, or, you or as a product? Yeah. Like, yeah. is it, it's really about, it's really about, um, attraction is about adding value. So is what I'm doing valuable yeah. and is my message relevant? So those are the two things that sort of make up attraction. Do I understand my value and can I position myself with relevance? So it makes sense to the people seeing me. The second part of that is like, so if you take attraction and you multiply it by frequency. So if I can be attractive a lot. Um, in front of a lot of people that I can build interest. Um, and so interest is sort of measured in engagement. So like when you start talking about like how many podcast downloads you have and things like that, that means you have value and you are frequently getting it out in front of people. I saw your billboard online. That looked really awesome. Um, that's a sweet move. Like that's, that's a gangster move. Cause like now you're in Nashville and you have this huge ass billboard up and that's so cool. So like that's attractive frequently. Right. And so I'm building interest. And then interest, if you sustain that over time, will get conversion. It'll get the moment where people are like, damn, I see that billboard every day on the way to work over the last four months. I got to download that when I get home. I got I to plug in. So they've decided that based on what they've seen, but they haven't downloaded it yet, right? And so there's this gap between conversion and purchase. Um, I think that probably 90% of all the revenue that businesses lose isn't lost revenue because you made a mistake. It's unrealized revenue because you screwed this piece up. That you really the attraction part the the, well, the conversion to purchase okay. so so you get attraction times frequency is interest interest divided by time is conversion and businesses get the conversion and they think that's it we've done but lots of people get to the point of conversion and never give you a dollar or never download your podcast or never go like follow you or like you online and, and really engage which is the thing you're asking them to do you have to give them an opportunity immediately. When they're at the conversion, this could mean they're on the website and they have the stuff in the cart, but they're not closing it. Yeah, it can, okay. it can mean that. It can mean, um, like, so for example, this is a good opportunity, a good example. So I, like I said, I have three kids and we do family movie night. Like, mm -hmm. And so for me, I know that means pizza. So my, my kids will ask me at four o'clock in the afternoon, dad, can we do family movie tonight? And I'm like, yep, that's great. I also know specifically that that means Papa John's pizza. Like they love it. Like it's their favorite. Okay. But then life happens. So the kids are late coming out of karate or Sutton's made a mess in the car, or I get an unexpected phone call and I'm 45 minutes late leaving the office. And so what I do is instead of ordering Papa John's, I go by Little Caesars because it's hot and it's ready. Now it's a substandard product. It's not as good as Papa John's, mm -hmm. but it is convenient. So Papa John's though had done a good job. They were attractive, better ingredients, better pizza, Papa John's. Everybody knows their freaking logo, right? Their slogan. So they're on TV all the time. Now they've got Shaq doing commercials for them. Like they, they are doing some, you know, brand management with all the crap that they, you know, they, cause their founder was an idiot, but, but they're doing some of those things, but like their, their pizza is great. I'm converted. I've, they've been attractive. I've seen it a lot. I've sustained interest over time. If I have a choice between what I'm going to eat when it comes to pizza, if it's fast food pizza, I'm getting Papa John's. Papa John's did not give me an opportunity to purchase at four in the afternoon. Wow. Okay. So, so, so they're they, losing that. They're losing, they're losing because life stepped in between them. Now they've done a lot of work to get me to want pizza for family movie night. And who got to capitalize on that? Little Caesars mm. who didn't wow. advertise half as hard. Little Caesars has won because they've said hot and ready. Opportunity is ready when you are. Wow. So, so Papa John's lost. So that's 90% like gone. And that probably happens more times than it doesn't. So what Papa John's did is they went to their app and they said, now you can schedule delivery. So at four o'clock in the afternoon, my kids call, I pull my phone out, I order pizza, say be home at seven and then I'm done. Mm -hmm. So that's called pivoting and adapting to the environment. Yeah, yeah. So they, so they pivoted because they understand that conversion has to have an opportunity for purchase. And so entrepreneurs, investors, business owners of all types doing everything should always be looking for how can I make what we call frictionless environments? How can I make people slide straight through when they get the conversion opportunity is natural and it's designed to just be part of the process. And then they purchase and they don't even think about it. The moment they decide they have an opportunity to say yes. And that is, that is everything to an entrepreneur. So when you're you know out doing quotes for roofs or whatever, and you get somebody you're like, yeah, we can do this. And they're blah, blah, blah. And they're talking about all the things. The moment they're like, 
yeah, okay, I think this is good. How many times do you hear, okay, I, I like it. I think I'm going to do it. I need to get two more quotes. Mm-hmm. I need to get like, no, no, no. We've got to figure out a way for them to say yes right now. You know, it, 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 even if that's like, I get it and I appreciate it, but we have to um, work, you know, because of COVID-19, use any excuse in the world, mm-hmm. right? Because we are going to give you the very best price, we do that by being super efficient. You know, we're able to give you such a great price because we're so efficient. That means we have to get our scheduling in. Like what I'm trying to tell you is that I need you to say yes right now so I can put you in the books. So even if I have to give you a little bit of an incentive or a discount right now, I want you to say yes right now. What you're going to gain in instant business and guaranteed contracts is going to far outweigh whatever discount you just had to give them, right? You, you need wow. to make yes instantaneous. So, cause you don't want to have them do two more quotes and somebody else that gives them an opportunity takes your money from you. Mm-hmm. So we did that same thing with the bar. So we'll get back to the actual question. There was this local bar. We had just gotten paid from our um, biggest acquisition and we had some money and we we're looking to do some investments. And there was this local bar and it was a music scene and talk about bad partnerships, man. We got these two guys in our local town that were like the czars of all things, live music. And um, they had had some bar experience and they ran a restaurant and all these things. And that partnership just didn't work out for lots of reasons. Um, one of those partners was not very good at, being a business owner. And Andrew and I were essentially trying to be silent partners. We were just gonna invest in this bar. We were gonna be in the background. And I ended up there all the time um, because nobody else was managing the bar because they were splitting their attention between their other restaurant and they were trying to open up this other like second version of that restaurant that was like millions of dollars. They just didn't care. And they didn't have any money in it. They had zero skin in the game because I had financed it. Mm. And so they were just burning through my money until they came to me and were like, we need more money. And I said, no. No, you're going to burn. I'm not throwing good money after bad. I'll buy you out. So we bought them out. We took the business and it was losing $20,000, $30,000 a month. Um, and I said, I'm going to completely redesign it. Took a week off from the other stuff that we did. And in a week, we had a, like, a closing concert. And as people were leaving, I was taking crap off the walls. I wanted them to see it. I wanted the community to see like this yeah. business is going away. Yeah. Um, and in five days, so we, we ended on a Saturday and on Friday night we opened and the bar was a hundred percent in a week, five days, bro. I slept there. I mean, I legit was there 20 hours a day. If it killed me, we were opening the next week. I was going to show everybody that was mad at us for shit knocking down this bar that like, you can't stop us. And literally, I redesigned the bar. There wasn't a piece of it that wasn't changed. Um, this is in a smaller town, by the way, right? Yeah, about 400, 430,000 people. So Augusta, it's yeah. the second largest city in our state, but it's still considered a okay. small town. Yeah. yeah, It's nothing like Nashville. And we we literally opened a week later, and we had a, we had a line out the door. And every night it's been open since, there's been a line around the block to get in. I created a beast. Um, like I told you, I wanted to make impact. It's what makes my life happy. Um, these two guys I knew, one was a bartender um, and one was just a, a kid I mentored growing up. And I said, hey, listen, I want you guys to come manage our bar. If you come manage our bar, I'll make you an owner. And then so we managed the bar for a little over 18 months. Um, we did a million, I think a million six in alcohol sales in two nights a week. We were only open Fridays and Saturdays. Um, and wow. so and like so we, we crushed for it for a year. Like our first year was incredible. Our second year was looking great. Um, And then we went to those guys and we said, hey, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to make you owners. We're going to just like essentially owner finance the business for you because we're going to get out. This is the valuation. And they agreed. And then they ended up finding a third partner to just come in and give us cash and for us to like step away completely. It would actually close like the week after like the state of Georgia shut down for COVID. Um, But they're open now. And like literally... They went in, they made some changes, they improved some things, really super proud of those guys, but they're still lying around the block. We just created the best bar in our entire city and it's amazing, but we only did it using all of our principles. We did it with the attraction thing. Yeah, we went in and said, hey, we're gonna make a bar that's attractive to women first. I swear our bar looks like Joanna Gaines designed it. Like it's white brick everywhere. There's a giant enjoy every moment mural on the wall. Um, We put ivy everywhere, like it looks gorgeous. Um, it was a like 4,700 square foot space with a 3000 square foot warehouse and we turfed the warehouse. So it's like being in a backyard, there's picnic tables everywhere. It's an indoor outdoor beer garden. It's amazing. Um, and it just crushes. And then we have a huge dance floor up front and like, we got the best DJs in town. I literally would go to the best DJs in town and say, Hey, 
you could play for a couple hundred bucks here where nobody is, or you could come play for us for a couple hundred bucks and be slammed. Mm -hmm. But if you come play for us, you can't play anywhere else. And they did it. And they did it. And then when we fired DJs because they came in and then I'd see them moonlighting and I'd give them one warning. And then if they moonlighted again, like I fired them and they just weren't there. And now you can go play for 50 people instead of 500 people. Mm -hmm. I, I, I did everything I could to make our place exclusive. Cause everybody wanted to be in. I would let girls in. Like it was a cover. It was only ever a cover for guys, but you know, we were doing three G's a night and cover. Jeez. Wow. Just guys waiting to get in and they would wait online for an hour, but I would go out and I'd purposely look for guys that were there on dates where with girls, I just come in and go, Hey, you don't need to wait. Girls never wait here. And I'd walk them into the building because now I know their girlfriends are in. The guys are going to wait mm-hmm. and they're going to pay the cover. Yeah. And so like stuff like that, we just, we just use our system yeah. to manipulate the customer behavior. That's amazing. I love that story. I've, I've shared that with a couple of people too, but I don't understand all the principles that go behind it, which is why, again, you have your program. There's something I need to dive into. If you were consulting a company, let's say um, the company wants to grow 30% is I think is a rational number to grow every year, but sure. let's say they want to go to 50 or they want to push it a little bit. They're doing okay, but they want to grow. They want to make more money essentially. Yeah. What's the, what's the number one thing you look at? What's the number one thing you tell them? Well, there's only like, there's only three levers to pull. Like you can raise your prices, right? If, if the market will let you, you can raise your prices and make more money. You can get more customers at the same price or you can cut costs. There's only ever three levers to pull. Like, man, things are simple. Like business is always simple. The first thing I go in, I go, well, let's look at what's under your control. Can you cut costs? Will it hurt your brand if you cut costs? Like, what are you spending money on? Can you cut costs? And if you can do it, all right, well, what's left 20%, you know, 45%, like you can only cut costs 5%, like you're going to make 45 this year. So then I start looking at things like customer acquisition costs. So when we start doing attraction, interest, conversion, purchase, repeat, right? So we go back to the beginning because we know those are all like dependent. So they step, stair step. So let's go to attraction. How much are you spending on attraction? How much engagement, how much interest is it generating and how many people are converting? So do you have a broken funnel? Is there a missing opportunity from conversion to purchase? How many deals do you quote versus how many you land? Right. So I start looking there. What so should I start that percentage be? What do you, what do you think? That, D- that depends on your skills, man. Sure. But like, like so I did sales, I'd close 80, 90% of what we did. 80, 90%. Yeah. Okay. For like, but I'm good. I'm good yeah. at what I do. And I always gave opportunity. I hated leaving the room without a deal. So for years and decades, when I first went into business, uh, my dad had always somewhat taught us entrepreneurship, but I knew nothing about sales. When I got out of the Amish, I was shy. I didn't want to talk to anyone. Um, and I went to seminar after seminar and I saw good. I saw bad. I personally believe and everything I've built my company around has been used to for years and years. People would talk about this, what I call slimy sales process. Basically, yes. you trick people by it, whether it's, it's body language or words that you use. How does a person become a mediocre salesperson to a great salesperson? Yeah. Okay. This is easy. If you're a bad salesperson and you're struggling with your close rate, I'm going to fix it for you right now. Because, you know, like I said a couple of minutes ago, my whole life's dream is to be impactful, mm-hmm. right? So impact always starts at a place of shared value, right? So how you get to be impactful as a salesperson and get wins is that you have to figure out what he values, the person across from you or she values that you also value. When you find out what they value, so when you start talking to them about like, you know, you're selling roofing, right? Mm-hmm. So you're talking to them like, all right, so let's talk about your options here because I want to get you what you want, right? So what's important to you here? Is it cost? Is it looks? Is it appearance? Like, is it, or is it just like functionality and like literally I just need to cover over my building, right? So if we're right. talking about roofing. So like, no, 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 it's important to me that when my people drive up, they see or my customers drive in that it, the building looks presentable, then that's super important. And, they, and that's what they start giving you. They've told you what they value. Mm-hmm. Like if you start talking about warranty, I'll smack you. Like that's like, no, no, no. They told you what's important to them. Mm-hmm. And so now it needs to be like, hey, listen, I get it. I understand 100% because like I'm in business. And when people see my trucks, when they see my cards, when they interact with me, I want them to know that I represent excellence. And I see that that's so important to you. So let me just tell you, we're going to take care of that. And when people come up here, they're going to see that roof and it's going to represent who you are as a person. 
Bro, so you found your shared job. value. I, I know, right? <laughs> so every every entrepreneur I ever I talk to person. is like, can I hire you to sell? <laughs> no, but I can fix your salespeople. But like finding a place of shared value, right? So everything starts with shared value. Then the other thing that really like is the key to this, and this is this may be the, the best thing that I give you all day. The thing that's key to this is that you have to sell with excellence, right? So I think we talked about that a little bit, but for me, I define excellence as proficiency and passion, right? Because those are two things, because I believe you can be perfect and not be excellent. Mm -hmm. I believe as a salesperson, you could go out with your sales sheets and you could go through the sales process with perfection. That person is gonna leave your meeting completely, had been engaged, had been informed, educated, and now they understand the process of buying from you and not buy from you because you did not sell with excellence, you sold with proficiency, right? So passion is when you believe and you can and you can operate with passion. Well, when I'm not passionate about roofs, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not passionate about um, this person and their business. I don't care about you know Sarah's cupcakes over here, right? Whatever. But I got to sell them a roof. Mm-hmm. Well, now I need to deploy this word. It's a magical word. It's called empathy. See, empathy. We always think that like when you're empathetic, like when people are sad, you can be sad with them. But empathy just means that I can feel your emotions. So like when people are happy, empathy is how you also celebrate with people. And when people are, you know, are are scared, it's how you also be scared with them. Right. And so when I go out to a sales, I'm always looking to deploy empathy as a strategy, whatever emotionally that person is putting off. I want to join them in that. So if it's like, hey, man, I just got to get this done because, you know, like uh, we've got this big thing coming up and and the roof's got to be done so we can have this event. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they got a deadline and they're worried about it. I would immediately be like, hey, listen, I get it. I have also been under tight deadlines. Like, I, I, I feel your pain here. I promise you we're going to take care of this. Tell you what, I'm going to cut this process even shorter for you. If you'll give me 10 minutes, sit tight and let me take a look at your roof. I'm going to come back with the, the easiest way to fix this problem for you. We're going to do it the fastest. And when you're done, this is also a problem that's not going to repeat itself. I do not want you to have to feel like this again. I love it. That's amazing. I just deployed empathy and now I can sell with passion. Yeah. And now I can have excellence and not just proficiency. Dude, I, I may have to keep this episode from my competitors. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is this is good. This is great stuff. Um, oh man. We're we're already at our time pretty much, but I'm gonna we're Okay, so there's one well, thing. we can keep talking and you can take all the personal stuff and edit it out and just get to the practical things. Cause that's like as a person, that's what I want. Okay, but like people relate to you more when they understand you. Yeah, no, I get it. I get so, it 100%. So that, I always, that's... always like, it's hard for me to do these things because I want to tell people things and I get to like details of stories, yeah. whatever. Yeah. I, I'm always, always more interested in the other person, right? Yeah. Because I know I can build rapport by deploying empathy. I can get like the first, when we sat down, the first thing is like you said, you know, you were Amish. And I was like, all right, time out, stop. I want to hear the whole story. Mm-hmm. I remember, yeah. I think I think the the part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast for one was to to get people like you. People often tend to look at you or someone in your shoes or your position and they say, "Well, I'm I'm over here and you're you're up there and there's there's got to be something special about Tommy that has given him this stuff." And and maybe there is, maybe there's that drive there, that inability to quit like you talked about. But if if you can humanize Tommy in a way that they're like, you know what? I may not be where he is, but I, I've had those same thoughts, fears. And then all of a sudden they feel like they can. Yeah. And so that's why I sometimes dive into like the personal story. Yeah, for sure. And I'm broken, bro. Like I don't, I don't hold like, like honestly, if you got to know me, I'm the, I'm the first person to like show everybody my warts. Like I'm, I'm a broken dude. Like I'm scared all the time. I'm terrified. I'm going to be a terrible father. I'm always walking this line of trying to figure out if my ambition is sickness or not. Um, I like, have the same question. To yeah, bro. Like, yeah. Like I'm scared. I'm scared to death of like, you know, hurting the people around me with my ambition. I get it. Like that's like a brag for some entrepreneurs. I'm so ambitious. I'm sick. Like, no, I really worry about it. Like it's, it's not like I'm not trying to brag, but I'm also like, I get so focused on task and like winning that I forget about people. Yeah, and so I'm me. always having to remind myself that people are the only thing that matter. Like, like I can be a complete ass real quick and like it, 
it takes a lot to set me off. But when I do, I don't come back down. Like I, I, I'll write people out of my life like they died. I'll like physically mourn them, and then I'm like, okay, well that person doesn't exist anymore. Like I'm a, I'm a jerk. Like I get so like I'm I'm trying to like humanize myself here. Like I had to overcome a lot of me being in the way. Yeah. To get to we all do. be the me that I yeah. want to be. Like I had to like die. This guy had to die a lot, and I'm trying to do it every day. But it, you know, what? Well, I mean, you you've been an incredible friend to me since I've gotten to know you. I think you're doing a lot of things right. Um, I'd love to get, just because I think this is so important and it gave me chills when you told me the story. I want you to talk, tell this story and then I've got two more questions and then we'll cut it today and then we'll just have to do this again because there's so much more. But the story of the Lamborghini and the, <laughs> and the reason I love that story is because you showed empathy for, an, for a human when people in leadership so often tend to write them off. Yeah. So can you tell that story about the kid who yeah, yeah. So, got the sale? So like, so for me, it was like this whole thing, like, well, we're going to sell our company. I'm going to go buy a Lambo. Right. So like I had this, I, for like months leading up to the sale, I would like, I, I flew to LA. I tested over Lambos up there. I flew to Palm beach. Like, I was flying everywhere. I found this Lamborghini I wanted in Palm beach. Um, I had insurance on it. Cause the day that like commas plural hit your checking account, it's a big deal. Yeah. And so it's like, it might, so I'm driving around, I'm in this like little sedan that we had and I'm just driving around town and I'm like trying to just take a mental day because I know I'm supposed to be flying the next day to Palm Beach to drive this Lamborghini back home. And uh, my banker called, so Crystal called me and she goes, hey, listen, uh, the check's ready, just come on. And I had, I mean, I literally had plane tickets. I was leaving the next morning. It was already insured by, I called my insurance company. Um, and she goes, check's ready. Just come pick it up. And I was going to go pay cash for a Lambo, bro. Like that's stupid. And the moment that I got it, as soon as I hung up the phone, I didn't want the thing anymore. I just had to always wanted my life to not be able to tell me I couldn't have one. And the moment I could have one, I didn't really want it. So I happened to be driving by a Chevrolet dealer, like, like literally just happened to be driving by. So I pulled in and I'm in like what I normally am in. Like I'm in like jeans with rips and I've got a, you know, a, a trucker hat on and probably in like a big t-shirt and some Jordans. Cause that's cause of my, my uniform. And I get out of my car and I walk in and you know, like I, your listeners can't see me, but I've got like pretty close cut gray hair and you know, but with a hat on, I look like a 12 year old. Yeah. Like I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I was probably, I think I was clean shaven. And uh, so I'm looking at in the Chevy dealer at all these Corvettes and I, I get it. Like, cause I sold cars at one point in time in life. I get it. And they tell you never pre-qualify a customer, never look at a customer and think, well, they might not be able to buy it. But that absolutely happened. I was in that Chevrolet dealership for 25 minutes and no one spoke to me. I'm looking at the most expensive cars they have. And I've been looking at them for 25 minutes and I'm literally inside the showroom, 15 feet from everyone's desk. So I turned to the lady at the desk and I go, Hey ma'am, like this, the receptionist, I go, are any of these for sale? And she was like, yeah, yeah. I said, well, can a salesperson help me out? She said, sure. And she turned around, she, this older guy was there. She goes, hey, he wants to take a look at some of these cars. And this guy looked me up and down and then turned around and shouted, like in front of me, just shouted, hey, Bryce, this guy, another young kid out here wants to look at these Corvettes. <laughs> like nothing sets me off like disrespect. And I was disrespect. I felt so disrespect. I knew I was red. Like I could feel it sweating on my neck and stuff. So, so Bryce comes around the corner and he's like kind of the string bean tall kid. And he's like, Hey, what's going on? And so we talk a little bit and he's like, tell me about the Corvettes. And I'm like, so can we test drive? I, I think, I think I'm sold. Can we test drive? And he was like, ah, and he just went blank and he kind of looked and he walked over to the guy and he came back and he's like, you know, you know, they don't really let me, I'm kind of new here. I'm young. They don't, they don't really let me test drive these cars. And I was like, bro, like, how, how are you? So I, I quit talking to Bryce and started like talking at the old guy behind him. I was like, Hey man, like, how are you supposed to know if you want to buy one of these cars? And this guy kind of meandered over and he said, listen, the people who can afford these cars want low mileage. So we don't test drive them. There might be a used one on the used lot up the street. If you want to go take a look at that. <laughs> and like, I'm, I'm trying to be polite for your listeners, but so many words went through my head for this guy. Like, who the do you think you are right now? And so I looked at Bryce and I was like, huh? So Bryce, what, tell me again about this one. And he goes, oh yeah. So that one's matrix gray metallic. It was this really cool, like light, light gray color. And he goes, that's like one of six in the state of Georgia. There's not another one like that in our entire city. We're the only people that got one. And I went, all right, cool. I'll take that one. And he was like, what do you, what do you, what do you mean? You'll take that one. I said, that's the one I want. It's exclusive. That's the one I want. And he, he looked at the guy and he goes, he says he wants this one. And the guy kind of called him aside and, and I'm like within 10 feet of these guys. I can hear it. And he's like, well, get, I mean, just get him a sales contract and see what he says. So he like literally, he's all right, Mr. Walker, have a seat at my desk. 
He went and got a sales contract and he put it in front of me. He goes, all right, so this would be the number on that card. You're not trading anything in. I was like, no, I'm not trading anything in. He's like, all right. I mean, well, this would be the number on the card. And I just reached across his desk and grabbed the pen and signed it. And I was like, all right, cool. And he's like, well, uh, uh, hang on. And he took it back. And, I, and then the guy got that. So I'm like around the corner. And the guy's like, all right, well, take him take him to Robert's office, the finance guy. Take him to Robert's office and see if uh, he qualifies. And then we'll move forward. I mean, if he'll buy it, he'll buy it. And so he came back. And he goes, Mr. Wofford, so let's, we'll, we'll walk into finance and we'll go through like the pre-qualification. I was like, no, I'm just going to pay cash. And he's like, I, he walked back and like, <laughs> this kid is just running in circles at this point. So he like stared at me and I heard him walk around the corner going, he said he's going to pay cash. <laughs> no, he said cash. And so he, the, the, the guy comes back around and at this point I know he's coming. So I like get my phone out and I'm calling my banker. So I call Crystal and she's like on speed dial because like I'm not a details person. So I have a, a, a fantastic banker. Crystal's amazing. Uh, if she ever hears this, Crystal, thank you. You've been amazing. Uh, so I call Crystal and I go, hey, uh, Crystal, so I'm, I'm down here at Milton Rubin. I decided not to get the Lamborghini. I just say it out loud because I want the guy to crap his pants. Um, but I, I did find a Corvette. I'm just going to buy it. Um, so it's this amount of money. Uh, do you think you could get me a check? And she was like, yeah, I'll just bring one to you. And so, <laughs> so my banker like cuts a counter check. And so I'm sitting there like legitimately drinking a bottle of water and my banker walks in and sets this like, you know, $80,000 check on the counter uh, and just goes, hey, can I do anything else for you? And uh, like I was sitting there and, and, and I was like, nah, I'm good. And the, and the car dealer guy still like still couldn't believe this. I didn't tell you this part the first time. Still couldn't believe it was happening. And he looked my banker in the face and goes, can he really afford this? And my, my banker just leaned in and goes, he can buy all these cars Wow! and just walked off. And, but like, bro, like I made this kid's day, like two weeks later, I showed back up and I bought my wife a Tahoe, brand new Tahoe. But did, didn't you tell me that the kid at one point said he can't sell the car that yeah, yeah, the other, the other, so yeah. So he was like, you know, I, I, they don't actually allow me to even sell these yet. Like they just have me yeah. come talk to you. And so the guy was like trying to pawn me off on himself, like to take the deal. And I was like, no, I'm only working with Bryce. That's the part gave me chill. Yeah. Stuck up no, I, no, I only, I bought from that kid. And then I came back two weeks later and bought another car from him. And like, like in the span of, I don't know, like three weeks, we had put a hundred thousand dollars to this kid's hands. Um, and, but like, like legitimately when I bought the second car, I came in and my wife, I just I had bought Kelly a, a Jeep, like this big Rubicon, because that was like her dream car. And then we had three kids and it didn't fit and she was mad about it. <laughs> so she had it for all of two weeks or maybe a month. And so I, like, I took it back to the dealership where I, not where I bought it, but I, I just owned it for two weeks. And they didn't, they, they tried to lowball me and get a wholesale offer. And I was like, no, no. And then, so I just told Bryce, I was like, I'll just take the keys. I'll, I'll go sell it somewhere else. Sorry, I can't make the deal happen. And then so they do that like close where they bring the sales manager over. That's the last tactic uh, to try to save it. And because uh, he, you know, it's called the 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 art of reciprocity. So if the sales manager comes over, he'll do you a favor. He'll say, I'll tell you what, I'll throw in floor mats or something stupid like that. Or or the best thing is like the spray that like uh, protects your paint. Mm-hmm. It did cost them eight bucks to do that. And they want to sell it for a thousand dollars. And so like, I can get a thousand dollars off. I can take this off. And whatever. So it's, but they do you a favor and now you feel like you have to close. So that's a tactic, right? That's that slimy salesperson thing. Mm-hmm. But he came over, turned the corner, saw me and went, uh, Bryce, you didn't tell me this was Mr. Wofford's deal. <laughs> Put my keys back on the, on the table and said, give him what he wants and just walks off. And so I got, but like, but literally now this Chevrolet dealership, I just took my dad there a couple of weeks ago and we bought him a new truck. Like, but now I get the best service. It's awesome. I walk in, they're asking me for stock tips. Hey, you're doing any Bitcoin? What should we be doing with it? Like everybody knows me and treats me like I'm like freaking royalty there, but they know that like they almost lost like a good customer. But like, that's a, that's a fun story. I like telling that one. I love that story. Okay, man, we're going to wrap this up, but it's two more questions. All right. So if, if you, well, I do, I've, I've not even looked at my questions with you. I've not even looked at them. That's the first time that's ever happened. Um, I talk a lot. <laughs> I hear them all the time. I, I can listen to you all day. If you were put on a world stage where the entire world is watching, you had five yeah. minutes to make a difference or an impact, what would you say? Well, man, okay, so this is an easy one for me because I'm a believer, right? So um, I'm a Christ follower. So for me, it would sit outside of that. Right. So we give you like actual practical things outside of that. It's take care of other people. That's what life is about. Like that's, that's what success is. It's not about riches. It's not about wealth because being rich and being wealthy are different. 
Like it's about taking care of other people. That's why we're here. Like we're the only, um, you know, species on the planet that abuses its own people for its personal gain. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I mean, like that's some animal kingdom stuff, bro. Like we emotionally have evolved. And if you can do that, then you're a sociopath, like take care of each other. That's, that's it. At the end of the day, you can lay your head on your pillow and know that you helped someone. Then you can go to sleep and rest. And if you lay your head on your pillow at the end of the day and you haven't helped someone get up, Cause your day's not over. I love that. That's that's a, that's, that's the message, man. Like that's an incredible message. Uh, that's something I can apply to my my life. Um, okay, if you could ask anyone in the world any question, who would it be, and what would the question be? Any, if you could ask anyone in the world, alive or dead, any one question, who would it be, and what's that one question? I, I would I would try to find the person who loves me the most, and then ask them why. Because I, I struggle with understanding what about me is valuable, right? So I struggle with that. I've, I've dealt with mental eh, wellness, mental health all my life. And so I struggle with that. And I really want to personally get to a place where I can understand that like I bring value to the world and that, that it's okay to be loved and to be appreciated by people. And I struggle with that. And so I think that that's what I would ask. It's, it's, you know, there are a lot of people that love me, my kids, my mom and all that, my parents and all that, my friends. But what I, I would try to like find the person who loves me the most and say why, because I, I feel like that would help me progress in life if I could really wrap my head around it. I might, I mean, I'm, I'm probably, I don't know that I'm that person, but I can give you a little bit of insight. I mean, I meet, <laughs> I meet a lot of people and, and, we were referred to by a mutual friend who I'm so grateful for, Vinay Betty. Shout out to Vinay Betty. Um, but I, I can tell you, I meet a lot of people. Very few people have impacted me the way you have. In, in a way that every single day since, I've thought of something you've said. I've thought of whether it was how you treated the kid at the car dealership or whether it was uh, business stuff you told me about different deals. We went into more depth about this business deal you did. Um, I just love everything about, I, I just want to acknowledge you for, for going out there chasing your dreams, like doing good in the world. I mean, you're doing good in the world. You're, you're, you have a program out that's helping entrepreneurs that's given back to, uh, helping people grow their businesses. Um, can you let our listeners know, like, where can they find that? Where, what's the website? Yeah. So it's, uh, we wanted, we wanted people to be able to lead. And we wanted them to be able to do it with speed, like lead fast. And so our organization is called the Lead Fast Company. And so you can go to leadfastco.com um, and see some more stuff about us. Uh, there is there is a session. So what what we decided to do was we kept hearing over and over. We we tried to like record and do these sessions on video and do video lessons, and that's great. But every time I would meet people like you, they'd be like, you know, like being across the table from you is the magic, like being able to actually see and talk to you. And so we decided that we're going to do them live. And so you can go out and sign up for being live with me for an hour on on a Zoom call with 15 other people. And I'm going to teach three classes a day, five days a week. That's incredible. And it's six hours over six weeks. So you get an hour with me every week going through our program so that you understand it and can run your business. Um, and then if you're, if you have like a company that has multiple people, there is lead fast for teams. And so you can sign your whole company up and we'll go through it as a company. Um, and so there's a place to get in touch with us about that. But here's what I also want to do, given what's going on in our world, we've decided like the place we can make the most impact is by empowering people. Right. So giving people authority, like telling them you have the authority, like uh, making them awaken to the authority that they have inside of them and instruction, because that's Mm -hmm. empowerment, authority and instruction, telling them what to do. And so with what's going on with like the black lives matter movement um, and us finally, like, man, I really believe, and I guess this is my prayer, my earnest, like hope is that, you know, when you birth a kid, every time you push, it hurts. Right. And, and, And no, no good thing is born without pain. Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream and man, I'm praying that this pain that our country is feeling right now is like that final push mm-hmm. where we finally get to see Me too. people like judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. So, but to do that, there needs to be a catch up. Like that community has been left behind for so long, the black community. And so what we're going to do is we're going to dedicate two of our classes every week 
to black business owners and black entrepreneurs, and we're going to do it for free. Whoa. So you can, you can get two hours with me or an hour with me every week. So um, if you are a black business owner, black entrepreneur, and you want to take advantage of hanging out with me, uh, just email me at Tommy at leadfastco.com, T-O-M-M-Y at leadfastco.com. Um, and we're going to do that for as long as we need to do it. By the way, he's not, he's not just giving you a media course here. He's offering your own time. Yeah. And this is worth thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars. Like I think I would just tell any one of our listeners, like you are doing yourself a service to go through your program. And I haven't even made it through. I just know from, from all the talk we've done off camera, off, uh, you know, yeah. being recorded and anyone who's in, who is an entrepreneur listening to this or a business owner, or even if you have an idea or dream that you want to chase, follow this guy, go to leadfastco.com. Uh, they can find you on social media at Tommy yeah. Wofford. Yeah. So T Wofford. Uh, so first initial last name, T W A F F O R D. Um, go to leadfastco on Instagram. You'll see me. Um, we do these things called conversations on the couch where like I get this thought and I just sit down on our couch. It's like, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk always has a camera on. My camera's not always on, but they're always around. So I've got two full-time videographers in our office and I'll come in and start talking and then don't realize that they've been recording for 20 minutes. And so we get these great, like candid, us just talking about life moments, like leadfastco.com and leadfastco on Instagram, I think is like a tremendous value. If I was an entrepreneur, I would have loved that. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Same. Um, I've learned so much from you, man. I I have so much appreciate your time today. I, you drove all the way from Atlanta to be here for this. Uh, I mean, I don't even know what to say, but um, well, it's it's not hard to convince me to come to Nashville. It's got some of my <laughs> very favorite restaurants. It's a good city. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Um, I'm really excited for this to to air and see what uh, kind of feedback we get. But Absolutely. for anyone out there, follow this guy. If you don't know him now, you will. So. <laughs> Uh, I guess we're out on this, but yeah. Thanks, Thanks guys. We'll talk soon. Thanks again for tuning in to The Ultimate Shift. Look, I know life is crazy. Life gets busy. And we all kind of have an idea of where we want to go and where we want to end up. But there's so many things that come up in between. And my goal with this show is to grab one thing from every guest that we can apply to our lives that help get us closer to our end goal. You can follow me on Instagram at Ephraim Glick, Facebook at Ephraim Glick, Twitter at Glick Ephraim, or you can go to the website at EphraimGlick.com. See you next time.